Turn with, oops, let me turn this on. Turn with me, if you would, to Philippians, the letter to the Philippians. And as we are turning there, let's bow for a word of prayer. Father God, I thank you for this glorious opportunity to get into the Spirit-inspired letter to the Philippians, Lord. This was a letter written to your church. And Lord, it's not only written for the Philippians uh, in Paul's day, but it's written for us that this Spirit-breathed word is profitable for us, for our edification, for our encouragement, for our joy, for our life, for our hope. And it's Christ-centered, joy-producing message is something we desperately need. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would come upon the preaching of your word and that you would be glorified, that your church would be edified, that the spirit would proclaim the truths that we need to hear and that you would tailor a word for each of our hearts and that you would help me, Lord God, to get out of the way that your spirit would communicate and that you would move upon your word in a way that would breathe life and hope and help and encouragement and grace unto your people. And I pray, Lord God, that we would be strengthened just as the Philippian church was strengthened by this letter as it was read. And I pray, God, that you would minister to our hearts right where we're at. And we ask that you would come and that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you'll remember a couple weeks ago, we stepped into the book of Acts chapter 16 and we talked about the birth of the church at Philippi. Because there wasn't a church at Philippi at one time. And Paul gets word in a vision that there's a man crying out and saying, please come to Macedonia, where that's where Philippi was located. Modern day Greece. And he gets a vision, come help us, come help us. And Paul is just moved in his soul and concludes I've got to go share the gospel in Macedonia. And so he'll preach in Philippi. He'll preach in Thessalonica. He'll preach in Berea. And boom, churches begin to get born. And if you'll remember, the Philippian city was a Roman colony. So it had Roman rules, Roman order. There was a lot of soldiers there. It was a city named after the father of Alexander the Great, Philip of Macedon. And so this city is Greco-Roman to the core, polytheistic, pagan, no real Jewish presence. And Paul goes there and there's not even a synagogue. And you remember he goes down by the river because he hears there's a prayer meeting and there's a couple of ladies down there calling out to God and a woman named Lydia is praying 
And she was a seller of purple and a businesswoman. She hears Paul. She hears the message of the gospel. And it says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. And she was born again. And then she takes Paul to her household and they're born again after hearing the gospel. And they're baptized. And the church of Philippi is, is, is being birthed in that moment. And then a slave girl filled with demons, doing fortune telling for her masters, is, is just bugging Paul by basically saying, this is a servant of the Most High, this is a servant of the Most High, and she's screaming out and causing all sorts of disruption. It goes on for days, and Paul finally says, he looks at her, and he speaks to the demon, and casts out the demon in the name, the name of the Lord. And this girl is delivered from demons but not without causing a bunch of ruckus because her masters now have no income coming in through the fortune telling. So Paul and Silas get thrown into jail and it would have been awesome enough if just those two things had happened. But in jail, the Philippian jailer fastens them in the stockade and they're basically bound in prison in the lowest part and can't move, miserable conditions, and they're singing a praise and worship and prayer night. They start a, a praise night in the middle of the jail. And about midnight, the earth quakes, the jail doors fling open, and the shackles come off. And the Philippian jailer comes running in, freaking out, thinking everybody's gone, and he's about to just take the sword on himself because he would have had to pay for his life for letting the prisoners escape. And Paul says, stop. Don't do it. And the man perceptively says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your whole household. He gets saved. Takes Paul home to his house. Paul shares the gospel with them. They believe and are baptized. And you've got a Philippian church now. You've got a Philippian church made of a businesswoman, a slave girl who was demon-possessed, delivered by the power of the Holy Spirit, and a Philippian, rugged Philippian jailer. That's the beginning of the Philippian church. And now Paul is writing to them 10 years later. They've been a faithful witness and partner in the gospel for the sake of Christ and the heralding of the good news as a sending base to bring the gospel to Europe. Powerfully partnering with Paul in the gospel, supporting him financially. For over 10 years, they've just been faithful, salt and light. And in the book of Philippians, we've got some of the most glorious statements of gospel truth. To live is Christ and to die is gain. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He who began a good work in you will complete it under the day of Christ Jesus. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will rest on your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
This is a glorious letter. It's a Christ-centered letter. It's a joy-producing letter. And it's life-giving, and we need it. We need to hear its truths. We need to marvel that Paul is even writing to the Philippians. It's a miracle. And they've been a faithful church for 10 years. And so we're just going to look at the greeting today. And the greeting is a Christ-centered, gospel-saturated blessing to us. So don't look at the greeting and be like, it's kind of boring. We're doing a little greeting and Paul's just saying hi to the church. And no, there's so much for us just in these two verses. We're just going to look at two verses and then I'm going to end the message and we're going to talk about some reasons why we desperately need Philippians. So hang with me if you're like, why are we studying this book? We've already got a little flavor of it, but let's look at Philippians verse one, chapter one. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're just going to look at this greeting in three different ways. The first thing we're going to look at is the servants of Christ. Second thing we're going to look at is saints in Christ. And lastly, grace from Christ or grace and peace from Christ. So let's look at those one at a time, shall we? Point number one servants of Christ. Look at verse one. It's right there in the text. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. We can gloss over that very easily, but that word servant is doulos, and it means in Greek bondservant. So it communicates this idea, not just somebody, you know, servant like serving tables or serving a house, but this is a slave. This is somebody who's owned. This is somebody who has no rights of his own, who surrendered his life and who is owned and who's under the authority of his master. Now, we don't want to get caught up in um, thinking of it like African slave trade, sort of uh, modern day slavery. It's not like that. It was very different. And there were uh, distinctions to be made in Christian homes. You had a reality where Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus is master. And he's like nobody else. He's a King. He's a master who loves his people. And we submit to the Lord as his servants, as his blood bought servants who he loves so much. He died on a cross for. So our master is like no earthly master. And we as slaves of Christ, Paul is using this term to communicate that we've surrendered our whole lives to Jesus. He is king. He has authority. Is that our hearts towards the Lord? Submitted in all things to our good heavenly father and master in Christ. Our father God and our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about Christ, the Lord. 
and he is a servant. And it's an interesting paradox because to be a slave of Jesus is to be the freest man of all. And the Bible depicts us as being bound in sin and slaves of sin. And a lot of people are using their liberty to do things and putting themselves in bondage because sin is a taskmaster. It is a slavery producing reality. When we break from God's design, when we live for ourselves, we become in bondage and we have a new master that's over us. And he is a rough Pharaoh like taskmaster who will beat you down to the ground because we are slaves of sin until we are set free to become slaves of Christ. And if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. That's what's packed into this reality of Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, I just want you to marvel at the fact that Paul is even named here. Because if you remember, Paul was not always Paul. He was Saul of Tarsus. He was a persecutor of the church. He was a rabbi of rabbis, trained under Gamaliel. He hated Christians. He consented in the book of Acts to the stoning of Stephen. He was one of the principal movers of the first martyr of the church in the stoning of Stephen. And he sat by, held their clothes while they clubbed him with rocks. Paul hated the church, and it said he was breathing out threats against the church. That's how much he hated the church of Jesus Christ. He thought that Christians were enemies of God. And so he got orders one day to put, prison, or to put Christians into prison. And he's headed on the road to Damascus. And what happens to Saul? He gets knocked off his horse with a blinding light. Y'all remember that? He's blinded by the radiant light of Jesus Christ revealing himself, knocked down. And Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you kicking against the goads? And he's just struck. Lord, who are you? I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. You're fighting against me and I'm the Messiah. I'm the Lord. And he struck blind. And he says, go to a house and there'll be a man named Ananias. And he will come and tell you what to do. And so Paul is, is struck blind and he goes to the house and Ananias gets a revelation from God that he needs to go pray for Paul to be healed because Paul's going to be his instrument to take the name of Christ to the Gentile world as the apostle to the Gentiles. Think about this reality. God has ordained to save Paul in this way so that he could be a missionary to the Gentile world. And that's why Philippi exists, the church at Philippi, because of what God was doing. And he goes and Ananias is like, Lord, are you sure about this guy? He's putting people in prison. He's trouble with a capital T. No, I've got this. This man is going to be my chosen instrument. He's going to endure much suffering for the sake of my name. And he will be my Gentile apostle to the Gentiles, proclaiming the name of Christ. And Paul was the foremost frontier missionary 
He laid down his life for Jesus and he saw himself as a servant of Christ, totally sold out. And from the point of his salvation, that point forward, he was preaching Jesus to everybody he could. He was stoned many times. He was beaten many times. He was persecuted, thrown into jail. So Paul plants the Philippian church from a jail. And now he's in jail again, and he's writing to the Philippian church 10 years later. He's no stranger to jail. But he was a servant of Christ. That's who he was. What about us? Is that where we, we go when we first think of who we are, our identity? I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. My life belongs to him. What he says, that's how I want to live. Who he is, that's who I worship. He's king. He's Lord. He's my savior. And my life is totally submitted to him. Paul realized the miracle of the gospel in his heart. And he began to proclaim it from that moment forward as a servant of the Lord Jesus. Unless we think that this whole servant idea is something uh, that's not being lived out by Jesus himself. Jesus was the ultimate servant leader. Philippians uh, chapter 2 verse 6 says, "Who uh, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count it equality uh, with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Jesus did not come to be served, but to uh, serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He humbled himself as a servant. He washes his disciples' feet. He's teaching them about servant leadership. He's teaching them about the glory of servant leadership. And that's something that we, I want to commend to us. Second thing we see in this introduction is saints in Christ. Saints in Christ. Look at verse 1 again. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Did you catch that? To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Notice that he addresses the church as saints. Now, lest we get this view of saints hijacked by the church of Rome, you did not have to perform three miracles to be a saint. Every Christian in the New Testament is a saint. Every Christian in this room is a saint. What saint means is actually comes from the word hagias or holy. Holy ones, set apart, called out ones. You've been called out of darkness into the marvelous light of God. It means that God has set you apart when he saved you to become his own special people. And we see this reality fleshed out all through the book of Philippians, that a saint is one called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. They were once in darkness, now they're in the light, and let your light shine. Look at verse, or, uh, chapter 2 and verse 14 and 15. 
Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and perverse or twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. A saint has been called out of the darkness into the marvelous light of God's kingdom. That's what's happening. First Peter reminds us, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, God's holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. That's what a saint is. That's what a Christian is. Born again, born into a new kingdom, born into a new sphere, born into the light. You were once darkness, but now you're in the light of God. What a glorious reality it is to be a Christian. If you're saved, don't ever take for granted that you've been transplanted from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God's beloved son. You're a saint. And you still struggle with sin. You've been delivered from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin, but you still fight with the presence of sin in your life. And sanctification, becoming more like Christ or more holy, is a theme in the book of Philippians that will, will get help to grow in Christ, to grow in that saintliness, to walk in the light as he is in the light. One commentator said, in reality, the, king, the Christian's position as a saint involves a reorientation away from self and towards Christ. That's a powerfully true thing. We're reoriented away from selfishness and me monster, me, myself, and I, to Christ. That's what happens when God calls you into his kingdom. Look again at verse 1. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. Every saint, every Christian, every believer in Christ is in Christ. You are in the sphere of Christ. You've been adopted into the family of God in Christ. That's whose you are. You're Christ. You're his possession. You're his people. You're his family. You've been brought out of the family of Adam, sold under sin, into the family of God, blood-bought in Jesus Christ. That's what the Gospel of John teaches us in John 1.12. But to all who did receive him, meaning Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born... Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You have been born of God into the family of God. That's what happens when supernatural life comes into you. You believe and you are brought into God's family by faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, by his blood and righteousness. We are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper later in proclaiming the reality of his death, that we're blood-bought, 
into the family of God. That's what happens to Christians. Romans 8 says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You are a part of the family of God. And if you're a believer, the spirit is bearing witness with your spirit that you're God's child, that you're in his family, that you are a part of the kingdom of God's beloved son. Adopted. That's the picture. Adoption. I remember when we adopted our first puppy. And you know, puppies are cute. Um, in some way, this analogy breaks down a little. But if you think about it, the puppies remain in the little area for a while and they're, you know, they're peeing and they're defecating and all that stuff. And, and, and they're nasty after a while. They're kind of gross. But when you select one and you say, that one's mine, and you call that one, you fill out the paperwork, everything legally that's been done. You clean him up. He gets a shower. He comes into your family. He belongs in your house and he is being taken care of. You've brought him. You've adopted him. He's yours. How much more the reality of what God did in Christ. You've been cleansed. You're spotless and the Lamb of God has been slain for you so that you could be clean and brought into the family of God. And that's what it means to be a saint in Christ Jesus. That's the beautiful reality. Or think of it in citizenship, right? We're citizens of America. But our citizenship as Christians is in heaven. Philippians 3.20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, to be or by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You're a citizen of heaven. This isn't your home. You're passing through. You're a pilgrim on the way. It changes how you live life. It changes when you've got the breath of eternity in view and that heaven awaits and new heaven and new earth and gospel realities ready to explode into your life and a future hope that is certain rock solid. You're a citizen of heaven if you're a child of God, if you're a Christian, if you put your trust in Christ and you're in Christ. And let's look at verse 1 one more time. Just one more angle. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Don't miss that. Who are at Philippi. This was a local church in a local city called Philippi that God was moving in. And they were to be salt and light in their sphere of influence. They were to spread the gospel. They were to take the name. This is a church bearing witness to the gospel at Philippi. So how they suffered for the sake of the name was a gospel impact in their city. For their proclamation was to their neighbors and their families and their friends. 
They were taking the name of Jesus and blitzing Philippi with the gospel. Smithfield Baptist Church is a church, a local church of believers, blood bought by Christ, who are to bear witness to the gospel realities in this city, in our county, for the glory of God. So don't miss that this opening greeting is speaking to us, saying we've got a local presence here to take the name of Christ to our Jerusalem, to our Judea, to our Samaria, and beyond. We're a city on a hill, a lantern on a lampstand, a light shining in the darkness. Be who you are, Smithfield. Be who you are in Christ. Be the church. And may the Spirit breathe life on you to go take the name to your family, your friends, the culture around you. This is what it's all about. Maybe you're here today and you're not a saint. All of this is like, I don't have this. I don't, I don't sense the spirit bearing witness to my spirit that I'm a child of God. I haven't experienced new birth in my heart. I haven't experienced the heavenly, heavenly realities of Christ breaking into my life. Believe the gospel. Believe who Jesus is. He's the king. He's the Lord who came. He died on a Roman cross for the sins of his people. And all who will believe on him will be saved. They'd be brought out of darkness into the marvelous light of God. And that can happen if you turn your life over to Christ in faith. And the Spirit makes that happen in your heart, just like he did to Lydia, right? He takes Lydia, opens her heart to receive the gospel from Paul, and she's saved like that. Notice in verse 1 that it says, and I'll be brief on this part, with the overseers and deacons. Paul singles out church leadership, the overseers, pastors, teachers, leaders in the church, called to teach and to lead and to govern with ruling authority in the church for the glory of Christ, to protect the flock, to shepherd the flock of God, 1 Peter 5. Hebrews chapter 13 reminds us, obey your leaders in the Lord and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, overseers is just a pastor. And you can read about the qualifications of what that looks like in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. That's the report card of what the character and heart of a shepherd should be. And I would just admonish you, pray that for me. Pray that I would, I would live that out. And pray that I would grow as a teacher. And pray that I would preach the word of God faithfully. Pray, as, as the Dutch proverb says, you guys pray me full and I'll preach you full. That's what the Spirit of God does through appointing men to be teachers in the church and preachers in the church and pastors. But then we also see there's deacons. Acts chapter 6 talks about a time where there was sort of a dissension over the care of widows in the church. And the gospel ministry was getting hindered in some ways because 
The church needed to care for these practical needs. And they appointed seven men filled with the Holy Spirit. And you could read about their qualifications in Titus 1 too. And they were the first deacons. And deacon means minister or servant to serve. The idea is serving the practical needs of the church. The idea is serving, coming alongside, caring for those needs that arise in everyday life. So pastors and deacons form the leadership of a church. And I just want to encourage us, pray for our leadership. Brothers and sisters, that is your delight and responsibility to be praying because the church will not rise above the godliness of its leaders. So pray for our godliness. Pray for our holiness. Pray for our passion in Christ. Pray for the joy of the Lord to be our strength. Paul singles them out here. And so we need to consider that. But he also addresses this church as a dearly loved church. They've been with him. They've been with him through thick and thin. Verse, or chapter 4, verse 1 says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. There was just a sense with this church. Paul just had a knitted heart to them. He loved them. He had compassion on them. He cared about them. He knew what they were going through. And he often sent, as we'll see through the book, he sent ministers to go encourage them. He sent teachers like Timothy. And Timothy shows up in the greeting here. Timothy went to Ephesus to bring encouragement to them. Epaphroditus goes to encourage them. Paul cared about his church. And he loved them dearly. They were his joy and crown. Point number three. Grace from Christ or grace and peace from Christ. Look at verse two. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is commending and, and, and desiring and, 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 and asking for God to bring to his church, to the church at Philippi, grace and peace, more grace, more peace. Now, these believers had been brought out of darkness into light by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an unmerited blessing of God that we do not deserve, that we do not earn, that he has brought us out of darkness into light. We are Christians because of grace. And we often lose sight of living the Christian life day by day in the grace of God. He commends them grace to you and peace. And it's from God, the father flowing from the God, the father through Jesus Christ. It flows from God, the father through Christ to us. Jesus is God's grace manifest towards us in a person to rescue us, to redeem us, to renew us, to mold us and shape us. And grace is needed to live the Christian life. You can't live apart from grace. If you try to do it on your own and you're just going to like lone wolf Christianity, you will fall short. You'll never live the Christian life. 
if you don't live by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you're lacking peace. You feel like I'm here today, but I'm anxious about so many things. Well, this is peace, verse 2, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We need daily doses of God's peace. That's why the Lord commends in this letter, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. And the peace, this is the ongoing peace of God in your life. It's the presence of his peace. It's the presence of his blessing. It's the presence of his care and your rest in his sovereign control over everything in your life. There's nothing an accident happening in your life. It's all father filtered for your good and his glory. And when you know that and you rest in that, you have peace. But you've got to have peace with God before you can have peace from God. If you don't have peace with God, it means you're not a Christian. You're at war with God. You're still fighting him, rebelling in your sin. And maybe some of you are there today and you need peace with God. You need Jesus to reign in your heart, open your eyes, bring you to a saving knowledge of him where you see him as Lord, you see him as king and you see your sin for the cruel taskmaster that it is and you want to turn from that. And maybe the Lord is calling you today to experience peace with God so that you can become a part of the church of God through Christ. So why do we need to read this letter? I mean, why Philippians? If we haven't got enough already, I'm going to give you quickly five things that I hope it's just like an injection of just gospel-saturated joy and peace and love and fellowship just filling you up. Reason number one, the letter to the Philippians reminds us of the benefits of gospel community or fellowship. And Paul thanks God for their commitment to gospel fellowship at Philippi. Look at verse three of chapter one. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. They've just been with Paul and they've been doing gospel ministry. They've been slugging it out in the world with gospel weapons, proclaiming, taking up their sword of the word of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, living out Christian realities. They have gospel fellowship, and that's not like, that, that's a deep intimacy. That's a sense in which you're together for the gospel, and you're together uh, 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 united in Christ, living for Christ in each other's lives, praying for one another, encouraging one another, loving one another. Gospel fellowship. What a joy it is to have a lasting impact for Christ because we're together for the gospel. Reason number two. This letter reminds us what it means to experience gospel joy and peace. 
We've talked about this. Do you need the peace and joy of God every day? Absolutely. You need it deep in your soul. You need it in your bones. You need to be in prayer. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice always in all things. Paul commends in Philippians 4. It's like he's saying rejoice in the Lord always for all things in all circumstances Everything is to be rejoicing in God, even the tough stuff. You will find the peace of God coming into your hearts as you rejoice. James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, for the testing of your faith produces patience. And let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, mature in Christ. It's for your gospel joy. Reason number three. This letter teaches us how to live a Christ-centered life. For me to live is Christ, Paul says. Everything in my life is radiating around Jesus. It's like a magnet. I want to be a magnet for the gospel. I want to be so full of the gospel that I'm just marinating, meditating, working these things out in my soul. To live is Christ. My whole life is his. We're a Christ-centered people at Smithfield. That's what we got to be. Verse 27 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Live it out. Live a life worthy. Put Jesus on display. You know what the church is? It's putting Jesus Christ on display among the people of God. And the world sees this counter-cultural living. It sees this light. sees this strange, peculiar way And is attracted to it because they see a love that transcends ethnicity, class, any of that stuff. We're one in Christ. They see a joy that transcends circumstances. And they want that. Be salt, light, city on a hill. And have the mind of Christ. Philippians 2.5 exhorts us to have This mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. The mind of Christ. Reason number four. The letter to Philippians will teach you to rejoice in suffering for the sake of the gospel. This one gets me fired up because Paul is writing this letter from prison. He's suffering. And listen to how he talks in prison. And I hope this like ignites a gospel passion in your soul to just start taking Jesus' name to everybody you know. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul, instead of saying himself like, I'm chained to this guard, it's awful, I'm in prison. He's like, I'm chained to this guard. I've got, I've got a captive audience. And he started leading guards to, to Christ. He started sharing the gospel with everybody he knew. And, and one of the people at the end of Philippians, um, 
it, it says, um, if you go to the end of Philippians, um, chapter 4, verse 22, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So a lot of guards were getting saved because Paul was in prison, and God put him there for that reason. So maybe you're going through hard things. Maybe you're in a certain place. God wants to use you in that place. Salt and light to blitz this world for the gospel and flip it upside down with the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through you. Ordinary people like me, like you. That's how the gospel spreads, like wildfire. Last point. Last reason. We need this letter because it calls us to have an eternal perspective. An eternal mindset means we have eternity in view. We look at death differently. We look beyond death to eternity. Because Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered death. Look at chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will do what? He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. If you realize you're a citizen of heaven and you're a child of God and eternity is coming and you're going to be with Christ in a glorified body in a new heaven and new earth where there will be no pain, no suffering, no sorrow anymore and the former things will have passed away, it will it will change the way you live here and now. Perhaps we're not living for Christ because we're not keeping eternity in view. And we're holding on to this world so tightly. And we need to have the Spirit of God breathe into us. You're a citizen of heaven. Now, maybe you're here today and none of these things are true of you because you're not a Christian. Maybe you've realized through this sermon or through others that you're just not there yet. You don't know Jesus. He's not exploding the love of Christ in your heart. You haven't experienced this good news. You haven't been changed. And I would commend you to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died to give life to all who will believe. And if the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. Maybe you're enslaved to sin, in bondage, and you need to become a slave of Christ, free, because the Son set you free. Let's pray and ask God to minister to our hearts. And, and may these blessings of Philippians just pour over your souls if you're a child of God. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this great letter. I thank you for the hope that it brings to us. Paul was not a believer. And then you knocked him off his horse, blinded him. And he was prayed for, got saved, and began to preach the gospel. And then you planted a church in Philippi. And it was a motley crew of all sorts of different people. Saved by grace. And I pray, Lord God, if there's some in here who, who just need Christ, they don't have Jesus. I pray that they would be calling out in their heart and their very soul right now, Lord Jesus, save me. I believe. I believe in the powerful work 
of Christ, that he died for my sins, that he rose from the dead to give life. And I no longer want to be slave of sin, but I want to be brought into the family of God by adoption through faith. Lord, I pray that you would be doing a work in hearts and that you would breathe gospel encouragement, gospel joy, gospel life into your people. Strengthen, encourage, build up. And may we rejoice in this glorious news. In Jesus' name, amen.